Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. Today, there are fintechs, many fintechs that sit outside of the banking space who look to disintermediate the banks. We see ourselves on the other side as a white knight to the banks. We see ourselves as helping the banks accelerate their innovation, being able to compete with those fintechs. Uh, We're also seeing an evolution where through open banking and through the difficulty in access banking as a vendor, there are more opportunities for us now to partner with these fintechs to bring their products and services to the banks through the fact that we already own that real estate in the banking space. That was Johan Roots, the CEO of Dragonfly Financial Technologies, and he is my special guest on this episode, episode 219 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Johan started working on the digital evolution before it was even recognized as evolutionary. He has a resume that is exemplary of a true leader in payments, and his greatest passion is applying technology to solve business problems. Dragonfly Financial Technologies provides digital banking solutions to banks in the U.S. They offer a technology platform for banks where their corporate customers can do all of their payments, cash management, and reconciliation. Their target market is larger regional banks looking to compete with the big players. Johan and I go on to talk about his journey to the role of CEO, including why he feels people still struggle to trust non-banks. We also talk about where he sees the industry going in the next two to three years as it relates to blockchain and payments fraud, bank versus non-bank competition, open banking, and more. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Johan. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Good morning, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Great, great. So let's dive right in. If you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. So Greg, I'm the other famous tech billionaire from South Africa other than Elon Musk. (laughs) No, I'm just joking. I am South African, grew up in the farm country of South Africa and was very lucky that I happened to be near a college that taught coding on punch cards and code sheets when I went to high school. And uh, so that was my introduction into technology. And I've been in the technology business ever since. In addition to living in South Africa, I lived for about three years in London. And I also lived uh, nine years in Buenos Aires before moving to the United States in 2014. And uh, this is now home for us. Both my wife and I became U.S. citizens a month or two ago. We're uh, nearly minted U.S. citizens. Awesome. All right, well, let's transition over and talk a little bit about the company. So can you tell us what Dragonfly Financial Technologies does? Greg, so we're a 20-year-old fintech startup, if there's such a thing. The company was founded on the 1st of September 2022 when I led a transaction to carve out of ACI Worldwide, their digital banking business, together with one equity partner who's a mid-sized equity player from based in New York who invests in Europe and in the US. But the origins of the business were uh, a series of acquisitions made by ACI over the last decade of digital banking businesses, uh, which they consolidated. And then uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to buy the business out of ACI, which will then allow us to focus exclusively 
on providing digital banking solutions to banks in the U.S. Okay. And when you say digital banking solutions specifically, what do you mean? That's a really good question. Before I joined ACI, I ran an identity theft monitoring business similar to what LifeLock does. And whenever I flew into the U.S. and the immigration officer would ask me, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm the CEO of a technology company. And he says, what, what does the technology company do? That's the true test of whether you can explain mm-hmm. succinctly to someone what you do is whether the immigration officer will believe you and let you in. So what digital business banking really is, is we provide a technology platform for banks where their corporate and business customers can sign on and do all of their corporate payments, do all of their cash management, and do all of their reconciliations back into their accounting systems. The kind of banks who want that solution are banks who need to compete with the big players in the U.S. They need the functionality and the user experience that the core banking providers can't provide for them. And as a result, they look for a best-of-breed solution that they can implement and with which they can then compete against the the large U.S. banks. Okay, so are your customers sort of more regional and community banks or what size customers or size banks do you typically go after? Exactly right. So it's the it's the larger regional banks. They are typically very customer centric. They lead with customer service as as their value proposition. So they're very close to their clients. They are regional. They they typically north of a billion dollars in assets. They see corporate transactional banking as a key part of their uh, business offering both to raise deposits and also to generate fees and then obviously to also make lending through the platform. So it's that kind of banking portfolio. So we have 36 US banks as clients, but we also have a bank in the US, banks in Asia, in 10 countries in the Pacific and in Latin America who, who use our solution. But it's typically that, that there are about 350 banks of that size in the US that are our client base. And then how do you go to market? Do you go to market with a direct sales team or through partnership channels or both? We typically go to market with a direct sales team, Greg. The sales cycles with banks is typically quite long. Banks would take years to make a decision on changing a digital platform. It's a critical decision. takes quite some time to implement. And if they're happy, they would stick with that solution for a decade. As long as the as the long as the solution keeps innovating and keeps following the trends and and the functionality that the market needs, so um, it's better to have very experienced in-house sales guys who know the space. It's a little bit of a club, frankly speaking, uh, corporate treasury and transactional banking with its own language and its own club members who know each other for decades. So it's ideally we go to market with our own folks. We have some partners on the fintech space that uh, we do get some leads from, but really it's it's about the people that our sales team and our services team know over the years and the decades who know they can trust us and who know what we can deliver that go and talk to both existing customers and prospects. Yeah, you you said something in there that, that made me think of a, of a question when you said fintechs. So are there fintechs out there that are providing similar sort of services to others that would use your platform or is it strictly banks? So it's 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 interesting, Greg. This there and there has been for 20 years now, 
in banking, and I, I come from the banking world, there has been this battle between banks and non-banks about who's going to own the customer, whether it's a consumer or a, or a corporate. And what we've seen, again, over two decades is the evolution of, of third-party providers who disintermediate banks by providing solutions to customers in a more agile way, more customer-centric way, and more re- reactive to what the customer wants. And then we've seen the banks stepping up, competing, investing in their own technologies and services platforms to compete with that. So today there are fintechs, many fintechs that sit outside of the banking space who look to disintermediate the banks. We see ourselves on the other side as a white knight to the banks. We see ourselves as helping the banks accelerate their innovation, being able to compete with those fintechs. Uh, We're also seeing an evolution where through open banking and through the difficulty in access banking as a vendor, there are more opportunities for us now to partner with these fintechs to bring their products and services to the banks through the fact that we already own that real estate in the banking space. Yeah, very, very interesting how the the fintechs have tried to disintermediate and doesn't always quite work. So very interesting. Yeah, especially in our space, you know, I was chatting to a fintech the other day and they provide their service directly to corporates. So, you know, if you think about my distribution challenge, which we spoke about earlier, which is going after 300 U.S. banks versus somebody who needs to sell to corporates and of which there are millions and millions of corporates in the U.S. spread spread out all over, it's a much harder task to go and see the head of treasury in a corporate or the CFO explain to them what your product is and get them to sign a contract with you. Whereas, you know, we we have 350,000 corporates that go through our banking channel uh, into the banks. And, you know, we do a billion dollars of transactions a day. So again, you know, once you own that real estate, it's much easier for us to introduce via our banks those products and services to those corporates and allow our banks to make the relationship more sticky and for the corporates to benefit as well without having to have this very granular approach from fintechs to sell solutions to them. Yeah, very interesting. So what would you say differentiates your company from your competitors out there? The product, Greg. You know, if you're you're in the tech space, really you, you live and breathe your product. This product that we have comes from 20 years of knowledge that, the team of 300 people that we have in Dragonfly has. The average tenure of our employees is 13 years. So it's a very long tenured bunch of engineers and architects and product folks. And the product richness is really what differentiates us. We we built the product to cater for larger banks and more sophisticated corporates in terms of the entitlements and how they set up the types of payments and who can initiate and approve what payments, the way we architected the system and the way the system integrates with the core banking backends and also with the fintech ecosystem. So that's really what differentiates us and what will continue to differentiate us. We will continue to invest aggressively in the product to continue to make it the best in the market and to, to continue to innovate both in the features and in the architecture of it. 
I think you could answer this from either way or both, maybe. But where do you see payments being broad? Or if you want to talk specifically around your area of expertise, but where do you see that heading in, say, the next two to three years? Yeah, I, I keep myself to to the corporate side just because that's our business. You know, I have an opinion on everything, but uh, I'll stick the, to the corporate uh, payment space. I think I see three trends. And our customers see it as well. I mean, one of the fun things of running a business where you have 40 banks as clients is I get to talk to every single one of them every month. It's a great pleasure to have as a CEO where you can interact with the people at your clients on a monthly basis and have a chat to them about where they're going to and how they want to win in the marketplace. So three trends. I think fintech integration and open banking, what that you and I have spoken about a little earlier. So. I see all of these fintechs continue to innovate. I think there's a bit of a bloodletting going on at the moment, just given what's happening in the PE space and the availability of cheap funding. So the guys that are going to survive will have the strongest products and the best chance to make a go of it. And I see open banking allowing us to help our banking clients access and integrate with those fintech players in a way where it's not tedious for them. First trend. Second trend, I think artificial intelligence-based treasury management is going to be a, a big thing for our corporate clients and for the banks that will make the relationship a lot more sticky. And with that, I mean real-time data visibility for the corporates in their cash across multiple accounts, across multiple banks, and allowing those corporates that do not have their own in-house treasury management teams to be able to get the advice through AI from their banks on how to optimize their cash holdings. And together with that comes efficient workflows and then the seamless integration into the ecosystem. So that's the second trend. And then the third trend that is going to be very interesting to observe is real-time payments. So high-value real-time payments that are going to, you know, that are coming out and will continue to come out. You know, Zelle is really a, a consumer play. And most of the real-time payments innovation in the U.S. have been on the consumer side up to now. With Fed now coming through, we're going to start seeing the ability to make wholesale real-time payments. And that's both a tremendously exciting thing and a tremendously scary thing. Because the excitement is that you can optimize as a corporate your cash flow payments so much better with real-time. You can plan much more accurately. You don't have to plan in days you can plan in hours and minutes, and you can really, really look at where your cash pools have to be to make payments to vendors, to sweep cash into a holding account, all of those things that mid-sized corporates don't have all the people that they can do with today. So there's this really opportunity there. And, and finally, cash has value again with interest rates rising. But the scary part of real time is, is two things. The one is fraud and the prevention thereof, of course. You know, it's one thing me stealing $100 from you, it's a whole nother story stealing a $100 million transaction. So the fraud systems are going to have to be really, really good for real time, which means that the authentication, the entitlements, who can approve what, and all of the ecosystem of tools that we have available today to help corporates prevent fraud will have to be very strong, both on our side and on the bank side. And then, of course, the real scary thing, we saw that in the uh, very exciting three weeks we've had in banking in the U.S., and I say exciting with my tongue firmly in my cheek, um, <laughs> is, is how quickly money moves. 
we saw unprecedented transaction volumes through our platforms the last two and a half weeks. We saw 3x the the highest volumes we'd ever seen from from our clients as people move money around after the uh, the Silicon Valley and Signature liquidity events. But uh, but those are the three the three evolutions I think. So fintech integration, open banking, that bucket of the, of getting into the ecosystem, then really building AI based solutions for corporates to help them optimize where their cash is and how they manage it, and then finally the ability to make payments wholesale, high-value payments in real time, which means that, again, that there's opportunity for both banks and for corporates to optimize and uh, and maximize their cash holdings. Yeah. So when I asked this question to people a year ago, a lot of people mentioned, obviously, crypto and blockchain. I'm not sure crypto really is is part of what you would do, but I would think blockchain might be in in the future or something. Can you is there a play for blockchain in in your space? I you know it was it was a very unpopular thing the last couple of years to say that you're not quite sure about crypto. I'm getting quite old now, Greg, and anything that where my grandmother thinks she's going to make a lot of money out of quick, I tend to be very skeptical of, <laughs> and I got very skeptical about. Crypto, when one of our neighbors, elderly lady who we take care of, came for lunch one day with us about a year ago, she taught herself investing in the, in the, in her eighties and paid off her condo with her own investing activities. So give her credit. But she said to me, I've just bought my first Bitcoin for $10,000. She says, can you, she, she turned to me and she says, can you explain to me where the mine is? And I then had to explain to her that that isn't really a mine in the in the sense that there's a shaft and hoisting equipment and a plant. So I I think blockchain will will be a part of technology as we go forward, especially on the fraud side, really to verify transactions. The the problem with blockchain always have been volume, but again, anything anything is solvable in technology with money and time. I do see blockchain as a part of the evolution of payments. And it will continue to do so because because it allows us to be able to authenticate transactions in a very transparent manner. We just got to work on speed because, you know, payments is all about speed of the transaction. And, and real time is going to make that a lot, a lot more important. I did want to double click on one of the trends that you mentioned and, and you talked about open banking. So I, I think there's a lack of a, of a consistent definition of what open banking means. I think it means different things to different people. I think a lot of people think of it as it's on the consumer side allows consumers to give access to their information to someone who's going to provide a service for them. Can you explain what you mean by open banking when it comes to the corporates and, and the products and services that you guys have? Yeah, I, I, my definition of it is a bit the European definition, I guess, where, where European regulators insisted that banks make it easier for fintechs to access consumers' information held by the banks and with the consent of the consumer. Again, that used to be very difficult 10, 15 years ago, banks rightly, and I sit, me sitting on the other side as, as a, the leader of the digital channels in the bank, always worried about fraud, you know, giving your, giving your authentication to a third party and not knowing how healthy the consumer's te- tech environment is from a risk and security perspective. But it's really that definition is where the government regulators tell banks that they have to make it easier consumers to interface their banking systems with the, with the fintech ecosystem 
so that they can make their banking easier and, and allow the fintechs to interface with the banks. It's really that. The CFPB is working on, uh, on something and we're expecting some CFPB regulation to come out or guidance to come out later this year on open banking, specifically for small businesses. So we're looking at that and watching that with great interest to see how that evolves and what the impact is of that for banks. But, you know, I, I joined Standard Bank Group, which is a top 150 bank in the world back in 2003, Greg. And even back then, we were so worried about this intermediated by telcos and by insurance companies and all and sundry retailers. But at the end of the day, people's money has a, has a specific intrinsic value to them that they still struggle to trust non-banks with their money, I think. They're okay to transact through something or to get insight through something else, but their money is something that they, they need to have a trusted relationship with the holder of that money for them. And, and really that, that comes from the reputation of, of the bank where you leave your money. I would 100% agree with that. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So tell us about your journey to your role as the CEO there. So I had a, a SaaS startup back in South Africa in the late 1990s. We provided claims processing for healthcare insurers and for pension fund companies in South Africa and Australia and the States, You're basically offshoring it into South Africa. That business I sold in 2003, and then I joined uh, the Standard Bank Group. The job that they gave me was head of digital channels at, at Standard Bank. At that time, we had we were had banks in 40 countries, 150-year-old bank, as I said, top 150 in terms of size globally. So very interesting time. Back then, we um, mobile in Africa was really becoming a thing. And you know, if you if you look at at fintech in Africa, kind of the technology jumped directly from branches to mobile. It never kind of went internet. It just jumped straight to mobile. So one of the first jobs I had as head of digital channels for Standard Bank was to counteract one of these threats of disintermediation. The There's a South African-based mobile telephone company called Mobile Telephone Networks. They have 280 million subscribers and they're the eighth largest mobile operator in the world and the largest in Africa. So we were always a Standard Bank very worried that they were going to disintermediate us and the other banks and open their own bank and get their own banking license. So so I got a job to to build a joint venture with mobile telephone networks to do uh, low value P two P payments and to do account opening where the person could just open the account on the phone. And remember, back in '03, phones didn't you know Steve Jobs hadn't invented the iPhone yet. So phones were Nokia's with pin pads. That was my first foray into into fintech. So we built that and launched it in eight months. It's still there today, operates in more than 20 countries called Mobile Money. And my other cool job in Standard Bank was we were just coming out of OS2 as an operating system and getting into Windows for ATMs and self-service kiosks. So I had this fantastic job to reimagine the user interface for all the ATMs and the and the mobile channels in uh, of the Standard Bank Group, and to give you a sense of of some of the complexity, just in South Africa we have eleven national languages, and in Africa more than forty languages that we had to cater for. The other interesting challenge was that at least a quarter of our bank consumers couldn't read or write, so we used the opportunity to build a new lexicon of images 
to allow people to transact on touch screens and allowed them to be able to send money at very low cost to each other using phones. So it was a very exciting time in the, in the early 2000s. I then had the opportunity later on in my Standard Bank career to move to Latin America and run banks for them in LATAM, where I got very involved in central payments infrastructure, specifically in Argentina. I was the vice chairman of the bank ATM infrastructure called Benelco, and I sat on the board of Visa Argentina. So saw all the issuing and acquiring challenges and uh, cost arguments with governments and regulators around how much banks should really charge the merchant fees. And then came to the States and, and joined ACI Worldwide, which is today still, in my opinion, the leading technology provider for card payment switching. Have more than 800 banks as clients around the world and have been the innovator in the space for three decades. I had the opportunity to work there as chief transformation officer and lead strategy and was fortunate enough that ACI was willing to sell me this digital banking business and allow me to take it with the team and, and to come and run it. Okay, awesome. So you you were working on digital things before digital was really cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when, when it was green screens and buttons. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what digital banking could be like in 2003. <laughs> I was trying to remember what, what the network protocol was before TCPIP, and I couldn't remember. It was the network protocol before TCPIP, Greg. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's great. Well, I'm, what that, are, I'm that old. <laughs> well, I mean, you've you've seen the evolution, right? I mean, from from those days till to today. I mean, there was even a a whole time period, right, where you know things weren't mobile native, right? They were basically a website put onto a phone. And I mean, I can remember those terrible user experiences trying to, you know, to use a, a banking solution that was really just a website put onto a phone. So I'm sure you remember all those days. Exactly right. So what are some things you're passionate about? So maybe a, a personal passion and a work-related passion. I would say on the business side, you know, I told you, I, I got into this computer thing way back as a kid when there were only mainframes and punch cards. I was never smart enough to be a true technologist who could invent technology. I saw that Moore died the other day, you know, and you, you just look at these great inventors of technology and I've, I've always felt so inadequate because I was just never smart enough. So I, I spent my whole life in applied technology, and I love a, applying information technology to solve business problems. I spent a lot of my life in, in information security. It's been a big chunk of my life now, probably the last 20, more than 20 years in, in banking, in technology, and specifically in digital channels. So I would say my passion probably is applied technology, how to, how to take information technology and actually use it to solve business problems. I've been doing that for pretty much all my career and, and it's still what makes me excited about getting up in the morning. On the personal side, I would say that I've tried to lead a life where it's one continuous stream of education. I've always loved reading. What It's probably my great pleasure in life is to read. As a child living 30 miles from town, I would read two of the five books the library would let me have before we got home in the car and couldn't wait for the next weekend to go back to town to get five more books. So I, I love reading. I, I read anything that I can find. I love it when people recommend good books to me, whether they're business books or, or fiction. My daughter is a creative writer, so I'm living out my, uh, my love for writing and reading through her. But I'd say 
my personal passion is this lifelong journey of education and self-education. We're coming up on, on the last question here. So what advice would you give someone who's just starting out in this industry, if you want to call this industry payments or fintech or even more broadly financial services? Let's say they've just graduated from college. They look at our industry and say, hey, I want to, I want to build a career in this industry. What would you tell them to do to be successful? I would go and learn it from the inside, Greg. If I was 23 and I just got a tech degree or a business degree or a marketing degree, I wouldn't go work for an IT company. I'd go work for a bank. And I wouldn't work for a Wall Street bank. I would work for a a universal bank that has retail consumers and corporate customers. I, I still think in banking, payments is very interesting. There are other things in banking that's very interesting. Risk management is fascinating in banks. So is lending and really how you think about credit, but boy, payments is fascinating. And the technology just will continue to make it interesting. But I would learn it from the inside. I think so many so many outsiders and youngsters who want to innovate run into the things they don't know just because they haven't spent that five, six, seven, eight years working in a bank, really learning the tech, learning the industry, learning how things work. And then by all means, you can go outside and try and disintermediate the banks if you think you see an opening or think you can build an innovative product faster that you can bring back to the banks than you could build it inside. That's what I would do as a kid. And the, 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 the sad thing with that is it sounds terribly boring, doesn't it? Go, go and work for a bank. And, and go and work for a, a bank with a good culture. Boy, these mid-size banks of ours, their cultures are fantastic. Great people. They love their customers. They swarm around their customers. They have very little politics. So I'd go and find myself a mid-size U.S. bank go start as a trainee, get myself into the IT department or into the product group. I would learn it and then go and decide after six or seven years, what do I want to do with my life? You know? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's amazing advice because a bank is where it all happens. Like it starts and ends there and all the plumbing in between is connected in some way, shape or form. And I'm talking about payments, you know, and you're right. Just the, the amount of fascinating technology and things and innovation and payments is just, it's amazing. And to understand the plumbing of how it all works, I think is is great advice. And I agree with you on that. All right. Well, we are about to wrap up and we've talked about obviously the company and what it does and, and the value it brings to the market in the future. We've talked about you and your your career. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? No, I just, I one last thought, you know, when we we decided we're going to buy this business out of ACI. People ask me, how did we come up with a name? But that's not my last thought. So the, the code name of the project in ACI was Dragonfly. You know, we normally went A, B, C, D, E and picked an animal name for every project. Mm -hmm. So D happened to be Dragonfly. And I then looked up the symbolic meaning of the insect. And it's a very mystical insect. It's known for, for its ability to evolve and for its ability to be very agile and be able to fly in all kinds of directions. And I thought, well, that's, that's a great symbol for a company like ours, small, nimble, being able to go in any direction and being able to evolve. So it, we had to write down the values of the company. And you know, Greg, I'm sorry to say this, but most company values are nonsense. People don't remember them. They're on a wall somewhere or on, on the website or whatever, but the company don't live them out. And the people forget about them because they, they don't connect to them. So I want to tell you the values we wrote down for ourselves and why. So instead of words, I, we, we wrote down sentences and we wrote down five sentences. Our first one is that we exist to make our customers successful. 
If your customers aren't successful, you don't have a business. The second is we strive to be great at what we do. You know, Greg, you get up in the morning, you might as well do it well. You, you know, it takes the same effort. The third one's really important to me as a person. We live to treat others the way we want to be treated. I think you never have to worry about your culture if your measure stick of how you want to treat other people is how you want them to treat you. Our fourth value is that we recognize that together everyone achieves more. In other words, it's a team company, not a company of individuals. And you will succeed here if you're a team player. And then finally, we say we're mindful that every interaction is an opportunity to listen and to learn. And the essence behind that is that you should use your ears and your mouth in the ratio that God gave them to you. I love it. I think that's a, a, a great way to to wrap up the show. And, you know, I just, I want to thank you so much for being on today. I know your time is very valuable. So I really appreciate you being here. Greg, I really enjoyed meeting you and, and being on your show. And I will from now on be a ardent listener and observer of, of your progression. Thank you for what you're doing for the fintech industry and for the ecosystem. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com, where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well.